good morning, everybody. Man, I am excited. There is some good energy in the room today, and I am loving it. Uh, if you want to open up with us, and I encourage you to do so, we're going to be in Luke chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 18 through 27 today. Um, if you did not get an outline, there's some available in the back. If you didn't get one and you want one, raise your hand. I'll have a runner go get you one. Um, make sure you Okay, all right, everybody's good. Um, man, Carrie and, and uh, Miss Debbie, thank you all for your testimony this morning. Uh, Carrie did a wonderful job. If you missed that message last week, I highly encourage you to go back and, and uh, listen to that on the podcast. Um, very, very good. Last week, Carrie led us through Jesus feeding the 5,000, which is in Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. And he showed us a couple of things. He showed us that Jesus sends us out into ministry, and he equips us in order that we bring others to him. And then when Jesus works in the lives of those around us, he uses us to speak truth as we love them. And then when Jesus calls us to minister to others, he provides for their needs and also for our needs. And we had some great testimony of that. Over the last couple of chapters, Jesus has been incrementally revealing himself to his disciples and those that are following him. And as Jesus is doing this, we see many people ask this question that we've been talking about for a couple of months now. Jesus, uh, when people experience him, they say, who is this man, right? Remember when he, in, the, in the boat and the disciples asked the question, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? And the, the townspeople, when Jesus cast out the demon, they're afraid and they say, who is this? And they ask him to leave. We see this over and over and over again. We learned last week... Um, that, that Luke shares this kind of final revelation in, in Jesus' lead up to the moment that we're going to cover today. In today's passage, we see Jesus asking the same question, but he's, he's not asking about himself. He's asking the disciples, who do you say that I am? And that's the title of our message today. Look with me at Luke chapter 9. We're going to read verses 18 through 27, and then we'll, we'll break that down. But let's, let's read together. It said, while he was praying in private... And his disciples were with him. He asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others that one of the ancient prophets has come back. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah. But he strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one saying, it is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and raised the third day. And then he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when, it comes, when he comes in glory, and that of the Father and the holy angels. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. In these ten verses we see three very distinct sections. The first one is Jesus' question and then Peter's confession. The second is Jesus predicting his death and resurrection. We're going to see him do that a number of times over the next couple of chapters. And then Jesus tells the disciples what being his disciple will require of them. In this first section, Jesus asks the disciples, 
rather than them asking themselves. And this question carries more weight when Jesus asks it. Our point number one for today is that Jesus asked the disciples for a confession of faith. Now in the Baptist church, we don't typically use the word confession a whole lot, but that's what this is. Over and over again, we have read of others asking this question, and we see the disciples asking themselves this question. And after they asked that, Jesus would reveal his power and authority to them. He did this many times, and then he even gave them that power and authority. And by showing them and then sharing this power, Jesus removes any doubt that this is fake. If you remember, there are many at this time that were claiming to be the Messiah, but Jesus proves it by not only demonstrating the power and the authority that are given to him by his Father, but then he shares that power and authority with the 12 disciples when he sends them out. And they experience the power of God flowing through them. And after feeding the 5,000, Jesus takes the disciples off by themselves and he asks them directly, who do people say that I am? And I doubt that Jesus didn't know what the crowds were saying, but he wanted to hear it from them. But then he asked them, who do they believe him to be? Jesus is separating their personal belief from that of the popular public consensus. You may not have thought of it this way before, but before you were baptized, you were asked to make the same confession. Whoever baptized you most likely asked something like this. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for the forgiveness of your sins, that he's risen from the dead? And have you entrusted him with your life and to be your Lord and Savior? And if you said yes to that upon your baptism, that is your confession. These questions are asked to reveal or for you to testify your personal belief about Jesus. And that's what's happening in this first section. Is Jesus is saying, who do you believe that I am? It's easy to stand in a crowd of many and say, we believe the same things. It is a very different thing to stand alone apart from the crowd and say, this is what I believe about who Jesus is. Jesus is asking them personally, what do you believe about me? If you read A.W.S. Tozer's devotional, there's one that's posted by cmalliance.com. Uh, I read that one regularly, and, and if you've ever read it, you've probably noticed when you scroll to the bottom of the page, there's a quote by A.W. Tozer, and it says, what I believe about God is the most important thing about me. What we believe is so important because it determines how we operate. It is what guides us through life and informs the decisions that we make and how we make those decisions. It tells us who we are. It tells us how to feel about the other people in our lives. It forms how we love and relate to the world. Jesus asked the disciples this question. He asked them because he wants to know where they stand with him. How have these, these things that they've experienced, all of this power that they've seen, how has that formed their idea of who Jesus is in their minds? And why is this important? It's important because what they believe about Jesus is what they are going to share with the people that they encounter. Jesus is asking them to articulate in their own words what they believe. 
And church, if we're honest with ourselves, that is often a difficult thing to do, to articulate in our own words what we believe. But I want you to know that if you've ever struggled with that, you are not alone. To explain what you believe about God is daunting because of the immensity of what God has done throughout history on our behalf. Amen? God has done incredible works. And so for someone to say, what do you believe about God? It's almost as if you were saying, where do I even begin? The church developed a tool during the second century AD to help people do exactly that, okay? They wrote the very first creed. If you don't know what a creed is, if you didn't grow up in a liturgical setting like I did, it's, it's defined this way. A creed is a concise, formal, and authorized statement of important points of Christian doctrine. The classical instances being the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. The oldest recorded version of the, of the Christian creed is called the Old Roman Creed, and it was written in the second century, and it reads in this way. It'll be up on the screen, or I think it's in your handout. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, and in Christ Jesus, his only Son, our Lord, who was born from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, who under Pontius Pilate was crucified and buried, and on the third day he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father. Whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the remission of sins, the resurrection of flesh, and life everlasting. Like I said, if you grew up in a liturgical denomination like I did, this probably sounds and feels very familiar to you. When I was going through this section last week while I was on a retreat, as I read through this, immediately this creed came to mind. It was something that I used to be very familiar with and I could recite without having to read it because I grew up in that kind of a setting. And I thought, man, what an incredible tool that a lot of people miss out on to be able to, to just memorize something that says, this is all that I believe about God. These are the things that God has done for, for, for me and for us. This creed was written to help the church articulate to themselves and to others, what they believed about God, about Jesus, and about the Holy Spirit, the church, our standing with God, and what will happen when we die. Those are questions that many people ask themselves. And all of us need to be reminded regularly by God of who and what He has done for us. Because this will shape our lives and our ministry. Without that reminder, we'll lose sight of God and his call for our lives. Jesus asked the disciples this question, and he did it to formalize their relationship. In our day, we might say he was making it Facebook official, right? He's saying, who do you say that I am? Let's formalize this. What are we? The same is true when we make our confession before the church, whether you come down to the altar or you do it at the baptism. But when we lose sight of what we believe about God and the relationship he's given his life to provide, we lose the very foundation of our faith. I've got a, a quick video, a TikTok that I, I saw this week from David Platt who kind of warns about that. I want us to, to watch this together. What if the greatest barrier to the spread of the gospel today is not the self-indulgent immorality of our culture, but the self-sufficient mentality in our churches? For us as church leaders, are we not all tempted in our day-to-day -day lives and ministries to do the work of God apart from the power of the presence of God? Evident in how little we pray. Let's be honest with each other, brothers and sisters. We have created a whole host of means and methods for doing ministry today 
that we can carry on with little, if any, help at all from the Holy Spirit. We don't have to fast and pray for our ministries to flourish. We have marketing and social media for that. It is possible, dangerously possible, for you and I to carry on the machinery and activity of the churches we lead. It can even be smooth, even successful in our eyes, and never notice that we're doing it all in our flesh. This is precisely the brand of Christianity that has been sold to so many people in our culture today. Multitudes of people who've prayed a prayer, made a decision, call themselves Christians, but do not actually want God to be Lord of their lives. People who want to live however they want on earth and then expect to go to heaven. It's blasphemy. You won't go to heaven if you don't want God. We don't come to Christ ultimately to get gifts, forgiveness, heaven, abundant life. No, you come to Christ to get God. Who we believe in. What we believe. And what God is saying must be our constant focus. Point number two for today. God should define our ministry. Church, sometimes there's a part of our brain, the logical side of it, that gets in the way of God's plan. Look with me at verse 21 and 22, and I'll explain what I mean by that. It says, but he strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one, saying, it is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. Now I want you to think with me for a moment about what we've learned so far as we've studied this book for over a year now. Luke's purpose, his goal has been to show us that Jesus is the Son of God. Can we all agree to that? That's his purpose. That's been our purpose in studying this book is to come to know the person of Jesus. Jesus even tells his disciples to go and make more disciples by teaching them all that they've experienced with God. Therefore, it seems completely illogical for Jesus to tell them to not tell anybody about what they've just confessed to him. From our perspective, this makes no sense at all. But our perspective is not God's perspective. And we must learn to trust his directions more than our logic. I'm not saying that we need to stop thinking about what God is saying. He didn't create us to be slaves or robots. God wants us to process the things that he's saying. He created us to live in a relationship with him. And a major part of being in any relationship is learning to hear and to trust the other person. But here's the reality is that Jesus knows things in this moment that the disciples don't know. He knows things in the moments of our lives that we don't know. And he tells them in verse 22, he says, It is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed and be raised on the third day. He is saying to them, don't tell anyone yet because I have to go through these things first. One of my my commentaries that I read this week said the Jewish people saw Jesus primarily as a healer and a potential deliverer. If the apostles began to preach that he was indeed the Messiah, it might cause a popular uprising against Rome. Jesus did not come to start a Roman revolution. That is not why he was there. He came to restore the relationship between God and his people. Let's look back at verse 18. I want you to notice something about Jesus' behavior. What does that passage say that he's doing before asking for the disciples' confessions? It says, while he was praying in private. And his disciples were with him. He's praying. 
Jesus is not out there making these decisions on his own. Before this conversation, before this confession, Jesus sought God's direction. Jesus was letting God direct his words and his actions. Jesus didn't take control of his life and be like, okay, God, I know the plan. I'll handle it it from here. He abided in his Father. He did the things that his Father said to do, and he knew what his Father wanted to do because he spent time with the Father. Church, we must take our cue for our lives and for our ministry from what Jesus does. If we don't, we are adding to the culture that David Platt was just warning us about. God knew what would happen if the word of Jesus being the Messiah got out at the wrong time and in the wrong way. He knew that the disciples didn't know. He knew what they didn't know. And they still didn't see the whole picture yet. God knew things that they didn't know. And he had plans that they didn't know about. Jesus told Peter and the disciples not to tell anyone who he was because it would have galvanized people's thoughts around who they wanted Jesus to be. I want you to hear me say that. Jesus told the disciples not to share this confession because it would galvanize who people wanted Jesus to be. The disciples were getting glimpses, but they didn't have the full vision Yet, the same is also true for us. I was telling Bethany this week, we had our first meeting about our needs assessment. It was really, really great. I'm so excited about doing it. And there have been so many things, like I've been taking notes about, about things that I'm, I'm thinking and things that I want, and God keeps telling me to just, just wait. Just wait, Will. And there's no doubt in my mind that he's telling me to wait because through this process of doing a needs assessment, we're going to discover the things that God wants for us to do here. But if I jump out and I get ahead of the process, I'm doing what David Platt described. I'm not listening to God. I'm coming up with my own good ideas that I think will benefit the kingdom of God without asking and taking the time to sit with the Father and say, God, what do you want for your kingdom in this community? If we aren't listening to God about everything that we do here, we will wander off track and potentially interfere with the very thing that God wants to accomplish. God wants us to understand, to have the full vision, but sometimes that takes time. But We see Jesus helping the disciples to understand that as well. Look at the next few verses, 23 through 27. It says, Then he said to them all, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and the holy angels. Truly I tell you. There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Church, Jesus didn't come to deliver them from Rome. He came to deliver them from the slavery of sin. His ministry was different than people expected and different than the larger culture expected. What God chooses to do through us will likely be different than what we expect. Should we dream? Should we think? Should we contemplate? Yes. But should we pray? Yes, absolutely. What we do know is that whatever we ask, God, if it's in his will, will do. 
what we also know is that sacrifices will be made for one another and for the kingdom of God. That commentary went on to say a little further down, it says, but Jesus did not stop with a private announcement of his own death. He also made a public declaration about the cross for every disciple. In his gospel, Matthew tells us that it was necessary because of Peter's desire to protect Jesus from suffering. We'll look at that passage in just a minute. It says, keep in mind that Jesus is talking about discipleship and not sonship. We are not saved from our sins because we take up a cross and follow Jesus, but because we trust the Savior who died on the cross for our sins. After we become children of God, then we become disciples. It's so significant that Matthew tells us that Jesus did this because of Peter's desire to protect Jesus from suffering. This is Matthew chapter 16, 22. It says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Peter didn't want Jesus to suffer, but that's not what God intended. God intended for Jesus to suffer so that we wouldn't have to. This same desire to protect ourselves and others from suffering still exists in all of us. We don't want our our friends, our family, our children, our neighbors, our co-workers to suffer. Yet Jesus tells us that we as disciples must take up our own cross. I want us to understand this is not for our salvation. Salvation comes from faith alone. But after we receive that salvation and become children of God, then we become disciples. And it is then that we take up our cross and we follow Jesus. Taking up our cross is a demonstration of the love that we have experienced and the practicum of how we express that love to others. The commentary goes on to say, the closest contemporary word to disciple is probably apprentice. A disciple is more than a student who learns lessons by means of lectures and books. He is one who learns by living and working with his teacher in a daily hands-on experience. Too many Christians are content to be listeners who gain a lot of knowledge, but who never put that knowledge into practice. I love that analogy. Church, we're not called to sit in a classroom setting only. This is not the total of our Christian experience to be in this room once a week. We are to go out with Jesus and get our hands dirty alongside him. Jesus is explaining that the life, what the life of one of his followers will be like. Point number three is that sacrifice is a response to the love of God. The ending of that video is probably my favorite part of the whole thing. David Platt says, when you get Jesus, you don't get things, you get God. And I think that culture has misunderstood that. We have have preached a gospel that is comfortable and says, if you come to Jesus, your problems will go away. But that's not what Scripture tells us. Scripture says, come to Jesus, bring your problems, and He'll walk with you through them. Our culture has corrupted our understanding and the, and the world's understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In this last section, Jesus makes it crystal clear that there is a cost associated with following him. Jesus' life is the example of what it means to have a relationship with God. Another commentary said, in the Roman world, 
The cross was a symbol of shame and guilt and suffering and rejection. There could not be a more despicable way to die. Crucifixion was not mentioned in polite conversation. And people would no more think of wearing crosses on their person than we would think of wearing gold or electric chairs. Gold or silver electric chairs. Jesus laid down this stern requirement for discipleship. We must first say no to ourselves, not simply to pleasure or possessions, but to self, and then take up our cross and follow Christ daily. This means to be identified with him in surrender, suffering, and sacrifice. You cannot crucify yourself. You can only yield your body and let God do the rest. And it references Romans 12, 1 through 2, which we've looked at several times recently. Since there were brothers and sisters in the view of God's mercies, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Church, this is what it means to take up your cross. I don't know about you, but this part of being a follower was omitted when I was first told about salvation, right? No one likes to think about this or wants to wants this kind of lifestyle if their comfort is the priority of their life. If my whole focus is on making me comfortable and me happy and I hear this gospel that Jesus says that as his follower I'm to take up my cross daily, I'm not interested in that. But it's easy to spend your life consumed with yourself. It's hard to give up things that you want so that others can have what they need. I've shared with you guys recently, a, a good friend of mine was diagnosed with cancer, and he's in Houston now, and, and I have been praying and asking him, what are some practical things that I can do for you because he's so far away? And he's given me a couple of little things, but this week, JJ and Meyer were going to Houston, uh, the, the pastors at, at PDC, and they called me and said, hey, where's he staying at? And I, I did a very simple thing. I coordinated them getting with Ben's wife, and he surprised, JJ and Myra surprised Ben yesterday, and Ben sent me this super sweet text. It was like, thank you so much. These, these people are the salt of the earth. And we know that to be true of them. And he said, I cannot express with words how much it meant. Church, that's what happens when we take up our cross. Now, my role in that was very, very simple. I sent some text messages. But even something that simple can revolutionize somebody's life. He said, they have made my week. He went through chemo this week. A whole week of it. And if, and if just a person sending a few text messages or someone going out of their way while they're on a business trip to just stop and say, hello, I love you, I'm praying for you. How much more will it mean when they see us laying down our lives for them? Have you ever, ever held slime before? You know what I'm talking about, like Nickelodeon slime, slime? Yeah, I got a lot of kids in here going, uh-huh, parents, you hate slime, don't you? <laughs> what happens? Amen. What happens when you squeeze slime really hard? It goes. Do you, do you hang on to it? Nope. It goes everywhere. Right. This is a great mental picture of what it means to try to hold on to your life. When we try to grasp our lives and say, "This is mine," Scripture tells us that we lose it. It slips right through our fingers. Verse 24, Luke chapter 9, it says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of mine will save it. 
If we're trying really hard to have the quote-unquote perfect life, not only are we wasting our time, church, we are, we are wasting our very lives. As you get older, I know I'm not the oldest in this room, but I'm certainly not the youngest. My dad told me when I was a kid, you know, like when Christmas was coming or your birthday and it seemed like it was a million years away, even if it was only a couple of weeks. He said, son, just wait. Time's going to move faster and faster as you get older. <laughs> We've got, got some testimony down here this morning. I'm 40, right? And time seems like it is zooming by. I'm scared of what it's going to look like when I'm 60. What, what I've discovered in my, my short life is how short life is is that we think about the things that we want to accomplish, what I want my retirement to look like, what I want, uh, you know, my kids' lives to look like, things that are, are important, they're good things. But if our focus is on anything other than Jesus, we are going to stand before him one day and think, oh my God, I've, I've wasted it. I had so much time and I wasted it. There is much at stake for those of us who have decided to be followers of Jesus. As Carrie shared, shared last week, Jesus came to turn the world upside down. Jesus gave us his literal life. He laid down for us so that our relationship with God could be restored. And for us to do anything other than pursue that, it's blasphemy. Our only loving response is to return that love and then to be willing to give our lives so that others can also know that love. And just to be clear, this is not an easy ask, right? The disciples struggled with this. Peter, the one who makes this public confession on behalf of the other 11 who were standing there, later denies Jesus because he was fearful for his own life. Jesus is telling them up front what it will cost to follow him. Jesus is telling us up front what it will cost to follow him. But church, this is not something that we do out of obligation or duty. It is a response to love. God sent Jesus because he loves you. Jesus came because he loves you. Jesus died because he loves you. Jesus rose from the dead because he loves you. He sent the Holy Spirit because he loves you. He sends us because he loves them. This is our call. It is our response to the love of God. When we make our confession, when we believe, when we take up our cross and follow Jesus, we do not do that to gain the status. It is a response to a status change. The change that God does in our hearts is what makes the change in our lives. It reorients our hearts in such a way that we, we see sacrifice no longer as sacrifice, but as an expression of love. Parents, if you have children or if you have nieces or nephews, wouldn't you do anything to save that child's life? Wouldn't you lay down your life for them? That's what Jesus has done for you. That is a result of love coming out of you. Your willingness to give up your comfort and your life for the sake of others is God's love letter to the world. Christ in us, the hope of glory, the Holy Spirit comes into us to express to a world in need of the love of Jesus. 
and your willingness to give up your comfort is your love letter to God, and it's your love letter to the world. Remember the old Christian hymn, they will know that we are Christians by our love? This morning, Jesus is asking all of us for confession. Who do you say that he is? If you've never received a salvation, this is an opportunity. I put on the outline, and I'm going to read it this morning. If you've never received salvation, it's very simple. And these are some words, but they're they're not the words. Just like Jesus didn't say, repeat after me, he just says, who do you say that I am? This is the conversation you have with God. It could sound something like this. Lord, I admit I am a sinner. I need and I want your forgiveness. I accept your death as the penalty for my sin and recognize that your mercy and grace are gifts that you offer to me because of your great love. Not based on anything I've done, but cleanse me and make me your child. By faith, I receive you into my heart as the Son of God, the Savior, and the Lord of my life. From now on, help me live for you with you in control In your precious name, amen. If you are saved, if you have prayed this prayer before, this is also an opportunity for confession. To confess maybe your failure to yield your total self and to ask for forgiveness. What we know to be true and scripture testifies is that God is always faithful to forgive. That is why he sent his son. To say that no matter where you are or what you've done, I love you. I want more for you. As we close in worship this morning, the band can go ahead and come up. I want us to take this opportunity to make your own personal confession. You know your hearts, you know your lives. And the Holy Spirit's probably pointed out areas where you've not followed through the way you want to or the way that he wants you to. Take this moment, this opportunity right now to have a conversation with God as we close in worship. Let this be your confession. Yield to God's plan. Let him define your life's ministry and then let him prepare your heart to take up your cross. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would speak into each of our hearts this morning. Lord, that as we close out in these final songs, Father, that your spirit would reveal to us if we've made that confession for ourselves. Father, if there are those in this room who've not yet received salvation, I ask that your Holy Spirit would would burn in their hearts, that they would know that without a doubt, that they need you, Father. God, those of us that are in this room that that have given our lives to you, Father, we have have asked for you to be the Lord of our life, but we've not living in that way. Father, I ask that you would point out to us the areas of our lives where you are calling us to walk in obedience to you. Father, I don't want this to be a moment where we're thinking about anybody else, but our focus is completely on you. Let you speak into our hearts and our lives and reveal what you want to do with us. Jesus, we come to you together as a corporate body. Holy Spirit, speak to each of our hearts. In Jesus' name we ask and we pray. Amen.